Well, good morning. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. It's so good to be back with you. I want to give you a compliment this morning. I hope it's a compliment. I hope, you, I hope it feels like a compliment to you. There's one place where I can speak that I can stand and I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to have any fear. And that place is here. I step up on this pulpit, to this pulpit this morning, and I was thinking about it as, as I was thinking about the message, and I had some, I had a sense of, of strain on me this morning about this message. And I thought about standing here in front of the congregation, and I thought, well, it's the most fear free place that I could possibly deliver this message. Thank you for being the supportive. Uh, people that you are in my life and that your love has cast out the fear of standing before you and presenting the gospel. But I do I do feel a sense of strain this morning. We're getting ready to look at Romans chapter 4. And I am overwhelmed by the text in Romans 4. This morning, and there's different reasons for that. One of the reasons is it's a very deep text. And you say, well, what makes a text deep? Well, what makes a text deep is its link, its links, it's the volume of its links to other texts. And I've been looking at this passage since I preached the last time, which is about six weeks ago. And I've been reading it almost every day since then and trying to trying to bring to you this morning in roughly 40 minutes, what the, the, the message of this passage. And we need to go through the whole chapter because we need to not split it up. And so we have a lot of ground to cover, a lot of thoughts to cover. But I can't tell you how many texts and how many different passages of Scripture went through my mind as I, as I have read this passage. It is so linked to, rest, to the rest of the New Testament. Okay, um, Alicia and John, I gave you all some papers. If you all would hand them back. I have, th I think, 30 papers printed off. There's 52 people here today, including children. Uh, so if you're sitting close beside somebody that you can share a paper with, just share it. It's not something you're going to have to be focused on. It's just something to help you to understand uh, something during the message. So you just want to hand those back. Just You can hand them across your shoulder, Alicia, and People can take some and pass them on. And then when they get to the back, if there's some left over, if one of you young guys there in the back could bring the papers to the front and see if anybody else wants one, if there's any left over. Or maybe John can do that when he's back there. Hopefully there'll be enough. I'd say, John, just come on back up the aisle, and if somebody wants some, just put your hand, another, and just put your hand up. I see, I see two hands up here, and there's still a couple left. All right, thank you. So that is the text that we're going to cover this morning. It's the last three verses of chapter three and chapter four. Other than that, we're going to ignore it for now. Come back to it in a little bit. I'm going to ignore the paper itself. That's what I mean, not the text, hopefully. So we finished up chapter 3 with the conclusion that there's only one way for fallen man to be justified before a holy God or made right before a holy God, and that is through faith. 
And that's kind of the conclusion that I brought us to at the end of chapter 3. But I want to go back three verses into chapter 3, and I want to pick up on a few other things. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only, or is he also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God who shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. So, in verse 28, we've come to a conclusion that the way to be justified before God is through faith, not by the deeds of the law, not by the performance of the law. And He is the God, this God that we're justified before is the God both of the Jews and also the God of the Gentiles. So He's the God of all men. And and that God, to be justified before Him, we come to Him through faith. And this one God justifies, He justifies the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Now, what is the circumcision? Well, the circumcision is representative of the children of Abraham or Israel, the people who were part of the descendants of Isaac. And they were... um, They were given the command to be circumcised on the eighth day. Every son was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And they came to be known, because of that sign, they came to be known as the people of the circumcision. And the uncircumcision would be everyone who was apart from that, or all the Gentiles, uh, the people who weren't part of that line of descent. But also, the people who were circumcised were the people who joined Israel from the Gentiles who were not part of, Uh, To become part of the Jewish people, every man had to be circumcised. And so circumcision is representative of those people. So what does it mean that the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith? And I don't think that we should spend a whole lot of time focusing on, on the distinction between the two, but I think there is a distinction. And the word by there, the Greek word means the point of origin. And so the idea there is that the point of origin of their circumcision was faith. That the people who were circumcised because of the point of origin, because their faith was the point of origin of that circumcision, those people were justified by faith. Then through faith, it has the idea of, the Greek word there has the idea of by reason of. And so the people who were uncircumcised were were justified by reason of their faith. Because the faith existed in them, they were justified for that reason. And so this one God justifies the Jews, the the Israelites, where, where the point of origin for what they were living out was their faith. Then he those people were justified before him. And the the Unchristian now in, in Christ or the, the, the non-Jew, the Gentile, he, he is through faith. The existence of faith within him brings justification into his life. So then is the law worthless? That's the last, that's the question there at the end of chapter three. Then is the law worthless? Do we make void the law through faith? And he says, no, we establish the law. We establish the law. What does that mean? How can we understand that? 
As we go through the next several chapters, we'll see how the law was not invalidated by what Christ did, but rather the law was fulfilled by what Christ did. And how the fulfillment of the law is not only a reality through what Christ did, but also through the life of the believer. Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so we don't, this doesn't void the law, but rather it establishes how its part, its role that was played in the salvation, in the justification of man. And you'll see the law just being, Paul just kind of bringing the law back in and, and he'll bring it in and, and he'll make a point with it and then he'll, he'll let it go and say, but you know, it's still by faith. We're justified by faith, not by the deeds of the law, but the law played this vital role and it played this important part. But Paul begins to move his argument now from the idea of the fact that we're justified by faith. He starts to take that a step further and he says, okay, so when we're justified, that means that we're made right before God. And so justification is like the movement from not being right to being right. But once we're at that place of being right, then that's righteousness. And so he's starting to move us now from this idea of justification into the idea of more positional righteousness that we have before God. I'm not going to read this text because I'm going to try to limit my voice as much as I can or limit how much I have to use it as much as I can. But Paul moves from the act of justification into this positional position of being justified before God and he focuses on Abraham as the example and particularly a specific chain of events in Abraham's life. And so he says in chapter 1, I mean in verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? What? How can we, can we look at Abraham and, and, and see in Abraham's life something that can help us to understand this? There's a, there's a key phrase in that first verse, and that phrase is, as pertaining to the flesh hath found. And what I want to, I want to draw two things out of that. One of them is by implication. And that has to do, or that implication is that the things spoken about Abraham in this chapter are not things spoken about Abraham after his life. They're spoken about Abraham during his life. And so the things that we're talking about here, we're talking about, how God looked at, saw, and interacted with Abraham while he lived here on this earth. And that's important to this passage. The second thing is the capacity of Abraham's physical body to perform. And so what did Abraham find in relationship with his, the ability of his physical body, his, his physical existence? And in verse 2, we find a link to that. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. And so it's saying that if, if Abraham, if the performance of Abraham's physical body was what he had, was what he was justified by, then, then he would have something to glory of. But then Paul says, but not before God. So the idea is there that if Paul 
I mean, sorry, if Abraham was earning his, was working for his justification, then he would have something to claim of himself. But Paul says, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? What does God say? See, that's, that's, what, that's what Scripture is. Scripture is the Word of God. So what saith the Scripture is saying, what does God say about Abraham? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So that's what God said. God didn't say it was because of what Abraham did. God said it was because Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. So I'm going to read. That comes from Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to read you Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came into Abraham in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. I'm going to stop there. So God comes to Abraham and He says, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I am going to give you a great reward. And Abraham's response is, Lord, what are you going to give me? Because I have no one to pass this on to. I have no life now beyond myself. I have no heir. The only person that's going to get the things that I have is going to be my servant. And I don't have, if, if, if it goes to him, if everything that I have goes to him, then it's going to go to his name. It's going to go to his person. It's going to go to his family. So what good will reward do me if I have no life, if I have no name to pass that on to, no heir to pass that on to? My life is going to be extinguished. Essentially, is what he's saying. My life on earth is going to be extinguished without an heir. And then verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And later in the story of Abraham, God confirms that this is not only going to be, that the heir is not only going to come from Abraham, but it's also going to come from Sarah. It's going to be the union between Abraham and Sarah, his wife, that's going to be that this heir is going to come from to carry on his name. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said, So shall thy seed be. So God promised him that he would have a son. And instead of his life being extinguished, that rather that life would be multiplied into an innumerable number of people. And so the children of Abraham would be innumerable just like the stars in the sky are innumerable. Now what we need to understand, what we need to pick up on in this is the idea that an heir is representative of life beyond death. If you did not have an heir, you did not have life beyond your death. And so what God was giving Abraham was a promise of life beyond his death. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And 
so that's where that verse comes from that Paul is quoting here in Romans chapter 4. It's in this basis of this promised heir. He's saying he believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. So what does God say? God says that as Abraham believed God, that his expectation of having an heir was not based on what he could do, but rather on what God could do. He believed the Lord. He believed what God had said. And it was counted to him for righteousness. This belief, this dependence on what God could do is what God considered to be righteousness. So that's why Jesus, when He told the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, He said the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself and he talked about all the good things that he did and how he was better than the publican. And then the publican stood afar off beat on his breast. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that was the man that went down to his house justified. Because his dependence was not on what he could do. The Pharisee's dependence was on what he could do. What he had done and what he could do. And the publican's dependence was on what God could do. And that's the person that's justified. The person that's dependent on what God can do. So the word in focus, there's another word we need to catch in this here in this verse uh, 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that's the verse, that's the word counted there. Now if you'll look at your paper now, that word counted, the, the word in focus today is not an English word, it's a Greek word. And it's something like logedzimahi is what the word is pronounced, something like that. Um, but that word is in this text, in this text here in chapter 4, 14 times. And every time you see a shaded word there, it's that word. It's that same word. Now you'll notice that it's not always counted, is it? That verse is used 49 times in the New Testament four, in 40 different verses. And it's rendered... And this, this passage is by far the most dense of any of them. But it's like the, the multiple times of use. But it's used in these different... It's, it's, it's translated in these different ways. Think, and this is in the New Testament, think nine times, impute eight times, reckon six times, count five times, account four times, suppose two times, and then one time it's used as numbered and reasoned, despised, concluded, laid, and esteemeth. And you might say, well, some of those really are, seem to be pretty far off, don't they? Like despise seems like a long ways from conclude. Well, that's used in the verse where it's talking about the goldsmith there in Acts. They said, we don't want the goddess Diana to be despised. And that means to be like not esteemed. So it has kind of the same idea. And you think, well, the how, how was laid used? Well, that's in 2 Timothy where Paul says that all men deserted him, but he prayed that it wouldn't be laid to their charge. or He, wanted to be, he didn't want it to be put on their charge um, or put to their charge. So we can, we can find in the different passages, we can find a similarity of thought with this word, but it's diverse enough that I wanted to, to 
pull together a little bit of an idea about what it's saying because if we have a word that's translated this many different times, then it has a lot of different angles to look at it. And since it's used so many times in this passage, then we need to kind of pull some of those ideas together, hopefully, so we can get a better idea of what, it's, what it means. There's two things, though, that I want us to think about in relation to, the, to this word and, and how many different places it's used and ways. When we're studying, when we're studying, especially a passage like this that is so, so deep and so dense, we need to be careful that we don't take an English word and imply the slant of that particular English word into the passage and thereby limit what God could be saying to us from the verse itself. And so basically the word impute and the word counted have a little bit different slant between English in the English understanding of them and you know especially in, in modern English language and also reckon would be yet another different slant depending on how you uh, use the word. So we need to be careful that we don't say, well, okay, and here, I didn't even bring, I didn't bring myself a paper. I was going to look at the paper and I was say, okay, so here, this, this verse, it says counted. And so we're going to apply the specific meaning of counted that we have to counted. And then down here, it says imputed. And we're going to apply that specific meaning to that verse. And so we're going to put a whole lot of weight on that meaning of imputed and that meaning of counted when actually what God's giving us is the same word. So we need to be careful that we don't try to define a word too close, too narrowly. Another thing that we should consider is, and especially in the case of this word, that when a word is used this many different ways, by understanding, by looking at the other passages where it's used, we can actually get a better idea of what the Word actually says. And then we can come back to this passage and we can say, okay, if this is the broad spectrum of what this Word can mean, and we kind of pull that together, then we can come to a better understanding of what this Word means. So that's kind of what I did. And I tried to put together a meaning for this Word, Logadzamahi, for you. It's something like this. And this is just... I want to give this to you as a concrete meaning, but as a way to think about it. It means to evaluate, to think about and evaluate something, to weigh it up, to, to, to balance it, in other words, to weigh it up, and to come to a conclusion on the basis of that. And so this word that God is using here when he said, he counted it to him for righteousness, He's saying that he, he evaluated Abraham and he weighed him up and he came to the conclusion Abraham is righteous. He counted it to him for righteousness. So Abraham believed God and it, counted, it was counted to him for righteousness. And I want to give you two things to think about and I hope this is clear this morning. But is this idea of Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteous, is it this? God looks at Abraham and he sees a poor sinful beggar and he says, you know, Abraham is really a poor sinful beggar. But since he believes in me, I'm going to write righteous on his account. 
Even though he's really a poor sinful beggar, I'm going to call him righteous, even though he's really a poor sinful beggar. Or is it saying this? God looks at Abraham and he sees where his faith is. He evaluates it. He weighs it up and concludes Abraham is righteous. That's the way he really is. And I hope that you're with me when I say it's the second that is the way God sees Abraham. Maybe you wonder why I bring that up. Well, you know, there's this saying that's pretty popular. You know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I think we need to be careful with statements like that because that's not really the language in the New Testament that I got see God using for believers. He uses language about believers being saints and being righteous. And he's, He means what He says. And there's another place where this word is used, this word logodzamahi. It's in Romans chapter 6. We're going to get there here uh, in a couple of weeks, hopefully. But it says there that you should reckon also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you should look at your life that way. That's how you should understand your life and who you are. And the point I'm trying to get at is the fact that this is the way God sees us. He sees Abraham as righteous. I want to read one more verse where it talks about, where it uses the same Greek word. It's from James chapter 2, and we're going to come back to this later. And I'm going to read this verse. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. That's James chapter 2, and the word imputed there is the one that is there for the Greek word. And we're going to come back to that near the end of the message, Lord willing. So verses 4 and 5. If it were by works, then it would be given as debt. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying if, if Abraham would receive this righteousness because of his works, if he was justified by works, then it would be given to him as debt. When your boss pays you at the end of the week, he's not paying you because you have favor in his sight. He's paying you because he owes you money. He has a debt to you. You have worked, and because of your work, he has a debt. Now, hopefully he has favor for you too. He gives you a bonus, and then that would be by grace, you see. But, but you didn't work for the bonus. You worked, and he paid you because of debt. And if we are receiving justification with God because of the work we do, then God's not giving it to us because of grace. He's giving it to us because He owes us something. But He doesn't owe us anything. And so it's not of works and it's not given to us of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So him that understands, him that goes to God in faith, believing that God is able to make him righteous, to justify him, then his faith is counted for righteousness. And then he shifts in verses 6 through 8. He appeals to the testimony of David. Even as David describeth the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who the Lord will not impute sin. So this was this these verses David is looking at it from a little bit different 
little bit different angle. And he's saying, blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven. See, that's part of justification. We looked at that in chapter 3, and we'll actually look at that again. But part of justification is the forgiveness of sins. It's necessary, and it comes through the blood of Christ. And so Paul is pointing to this testimony of David. And then he says, not imputing, that he does not impute sin. or He doesn't conclude or weigh up that sin against them. Well, what does that mean? The focus of these verses is on is not on the action. The focus of these verses is on the type of person. Notice in verse, verse 6, it says, this blessedness is on the man. Verse 7, blessed are they. And verse 8, blessed is the man. It's, it's talking about the type of person to whom God does not, who forgives their sins and does not impute their sin against them. I missed something in relation to verse 5. And it has to do with something that was in our Sunday school lesson about two weeks ago. It's from John chapter 6. The people in John chapter 6 were talking about the idea of uh, believing in God who justifies, um, justifies the ungodly. And that belief in God is what justifies us, not our works. Um, the Jews came to Jesus and they came after he had fed the 5,000. They came to him. and He says, you're not seeking me because you want to hear from me. You're seeking me because you got the loaves and were filled. And then he says, labor for the meat that doesn't perish. And they say, what, what, what? And I'm breaking this up. I'm doing it for lack of time. And, and they said, what might we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. In other words, that what they needed at the the foundation of their need was that they would believe on Christ and that they would find in Him the bread and never hunger and find in Him the water and never thirst. And that's what it's talking about. And it talks about belief. That's what Jesus is talking about. The same thing that Paul is, that it's on this belief in God and what He can do that is where we are justified. Verses 9-12, through 12, Paul shifts back to circumcision. And like I said earlier, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign given to Abraham. Does this righteousness... Does this righteous status come on the circumcision only or the uncircumcision also? And then he says in verse 10, well, how did it come to Abraham? Did it come to him when he was uncircumcised or when he was circumcised? And that's in Genesis. That story of circumcision is in Genesis 17. Where I read to you earlier was Genesis 15. It was counted to him for righteousness in 15. And then circumcision came in 17. So it was given to him, Paul says, as a seal of the righteousness in verse 11 that he already had when he was uncircumcised. So this counting of righteousness to Abraham, this conclusion of righteousness about Abraham was concluded about him before he was circumcised. And that righteousness was then, circumcision was given as a seal or as a sign of that righteousness that he had before he was circumcised. 
that he could be, verse 12, that he could be the father of the circumcision to both groups, to both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, who walk in the steps of faith of their father Abraham. Both the circumcision and the uncircumcision. In other words, the, the uncircumcised, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. And Father Abraham is the father of both by faith, through faith. Also part of what Paul's bringing back now from Romans chapter 2 where he says, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that of circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Whose praise and commendation of righteousness does not come from what man says about you, but rather what God says about you. And when God says about you, he said, when He says righteous, that's what really matters, folks. That's what really matters. When God says that about you. Verses 13 to 16, He moves to the promise and the law. So there was a promise that came to Abraham. And that promise was about that he should have an heir. That he should have a son. That his seed would be as a multitude. And he'd be a father of many nations. And that promise did not come through the law. It came through the righteousness of faith. So we're talking about now, we're talking about the reason why that promise was given. That promise wasn't given to Abraham because Abraham fulfilled the law. That promise was given to Abraham because Abraham had the righteousness of faith within him. Because that's who he was before God. And that's why that promise came. So if the law then makes them heirs, so if only the people of the law are heirs, then faith is made void because the law does something that faith did in the origin. So if the law can do what faith did, then faith is made void because the law can do it. But Paul says, no, the law can't do that. Only faith, only faith. Can the promise, the promise can only come through faith. But what did the law do? Verse 15, the law brought the focus on punishment. So what does that mean? And, and, and that matters in there because what, what the law did was it brought, and I mentioned this before, but the law brought boundary to morality. And then before you have a boundary, when morality is wide open, before you have a boundary, there can be no place that you can bring any accusation because there's no there's no. There's no line to step across and say this is the wrong side. This is the wrong side of morality. So where there is no law, there can be no, there can be no judgment brought. There can be no condemnation brought. But with the coming of the law and the bounds to morality, then all of a sudden, oh no, I'm over the law. So I stepped over the line into wrong morality. And so now the judgment is on me. And so what that brings, what the law brought into focus the law brought judgment into focus. It brought condemnation into focus. But God doesn't want condemnation to be the focus. God wants the promise to be the focus. So the law brought the, the, the focus onto condemnation so that we could then go and look beyond the law through Christ, through faith to the promise. God wants the promise to be the focus. Therefore, because of that, because God wants the promise to be the focus, therefore it is of faith 
that it might be by grace, by the favor of God, to the end, meaning to the goal, that the goal is that the promise might be sure. So that you can have confidence in the promise. So if God says that you're righteous as a believer in Him, because it is through faith, it is, it is done through faith and not through the law, because if you were dependent on your performance of the law for you to have a sure promise, you would not be confident at all. Instead, you'd be condemned. But it is of faith so that it might be by grace, so that the grace of God can give you what you need so that you can be sure that God's promise is yours. That is amazing. That's incredible. And then verses 17. And I tell you folks, I wish I could preach a whole sermon on this last couple of verses. I tell you what, these verses are so loaded with power. I hope we can catch a little bit of a little glimpse of that power this evening or this morning. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things that be not as though they were. This is about the nature. This is starting to talk about the nature of Abraham's faith. The kind of faith that Abraham had. And first of all, it talks about the kind of God that Abraham believed that God was. Abraham believed that God was the God who quickeneth the dead. That He makes alive things that are dead. That He is the source of life. Not only He is the source of life, but He can take something dead and He can bring it to life. He's the God who quickeneth the dead. And He's the God who calleth those things that be not as though they were. He's the God who said, I have made thee a father. He said to Abraham, I have made you a father. And God sees that faith and when he sees that faith, he sees it as his opportunity. And so he says to Abraham, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. Because he saw the faith of Abraham and he said, I've got an opportunity now because of this faith. I've got an opportunity to work in this vessel. And I can bring something about. And I can call things that be not as though they were. I can say that this is going to happen down the road because I've got an opportunity to work in this life. He's a God who calleth those things that be not as though they were. He can say that my life within someone is going to do something and it will come to pass. Abraham believed in a God whose word had power. Hope in this passage means expectation. So against the expectation of 40 or so years of childless marriage, against that expectation, Abraham had had all these years that he and Sarah had been married and they hadn't had a child. And the expectation was that they were childless. That was their expectation. But against that expectation, he believed in the expectation of what God had promised him. What God's Word had given him. When God's Word says something, it will come to pass. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed in the Word of God. And then, beautiful, he was not stopped by the impotency of his body or the deadness of Sarah's womb. He was not stopped by the fact. He was not stopped by the fact that he was a hundred years old. 
and that Sarah was almost that old, and that there was no hope anymore of them having a child. He wasn't stopped by that. He didn't falter. Verse 20, he didn't waver or falter in doubt. Instead, he had faith. And through the strength of that faith, God received glory. And you see, that's where, now we're talking about Adam. Now we're talking about Adam's life before the fall, in which his life was was there to bring glory to God. Not just glory through his, not just glory through the fact that he was alive and he could function as a human being, but rather because he was able to be the friend of God. And that's what it says in James at the end of that passage, that he was called the friend of God. And verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what God promised, He would perform. And I want to call us this morning, brothers and sisters, where is our dependence? What are we depending on? Abraham believed God. And essentially that meant that Abraham put the dependence of his life on God the dependence of His eternity. Then from James 20, What wilt thou, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? That's Genesis 22, just to give you the timeline. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? And then it says this in Hebrews 11, 17, the faith chapter of Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That was the promise. The promise was that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. This this promise of of many nations and your future life is, is on the basis of Isaac. And Abraham took him up the mountain to offer him up, to kill him, and offer him up on the altar. Knowing what? Believing what? According that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him as a figure. Abraham believed as he went up that mountain that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. Belief in the power of God to bring life. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which saith. The Scripture is the Word of God. The Word of God was fulfilled. When Abraham, when God said, Abraham was righteous in chapter 15, He called those things that be not as though they were. He said, I'm going to call Abraham to go sacrifice his son, and he's going to do it. Because I have this opportunity to work in his life because of his faith, and it's going to come to pass. I'm going to take you all the way back to Romans chapter 1 in conclusion. The just shall what? Live. The just, say it with me together. The just shall live by faith. Life. Life, life, life. Life is so key all the way through the book of Romans. The just shall live by faith. 
a child from an impotent man in a dead womb, a sacrifice that believes in God's ability to give life from the dead, a resurrection of a man, Jesus, who was crucified. The story of Abraham was written for us too. Verse 23. So that we could draw the parallel in our own experience and see how our faith in the resurrection is concluded righteous by God. When we look at the resurrection, we say, God, I believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, that He has the capacity to give me life beyond this life. God looks at that and He says, that's my opportunity. I can work with that. That's righteousness. And then verse 25. I told you about a sermon ago or two that the Gospel is really simple. The Gospel is about life from the dead. And we need to hang on to that. We're at Romans chapter 4 and we're talking about the theological aspects of the Gospel and why God and what God did to make it possible for us to, to live with Him, to walk with Him in Christian experience. And there's a lot of people that stop here at the end of chapter 4 and they say, okay, we're done. We've got this figured out. We're justified by faith. That's all we need. We're done. But Paul wasn't done writing. In verse 25, he lets us know that. He begins to open the door to the final aspect of our justification. He's already talked about, and he'll talk about it more in chapter 5, but he's already talked about that the crucifixion of Christ was to bring cleansing to our to the stains of our sin, to, to cleanse us from sin. I'm going to read verse 40, 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Life from the dead for our justification. An important aspect of our justification. Yes, the cleansing of sin is important for our justification. But man had two needs after the fall. One need was for the cleansing of sin, but the other was life from the dead. And we need both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to have both forgiveness of sins and life everlasting.